You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. In this episode, I spoke to novelist John Boyne, best-selling author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. John is the author of 12 novels for adults and six for young readers, and his books are published in over 50 languages around the world. His most recent novel, The Echo Chamber, is out now and available from all good bookshops. I have to say as well that John is one of the most generous, open-hearted people I've had the good fortune to meet. He was my first proper guest on My Unlived Life back in January 2020, if you can believe it, and agreed to meet me to record this when I had very little idea what I was doing or how to do it. And for that, I am massively grateful. When we met, John and I spoke about what his life would have been like if, at the age of 16, he would have had the confidence to audition for his school production of Hamlet. Along the way, we discussed his creative and sexual awakening, what it means to be a success, and his long-standing crush on singer-songwriter Will Young. So, John, you've come here with a path that you want to explore, uh, a moment of divergence in your life. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? I look back to, say, when I was 17 or 18, 16, 17, in the last couple of years of, of school, and the one thing I really, really wanted to do was to be part of the drama society. You know, we used to put on a play every year, usually a Shakespeare play, uh, whatever the, the Shakespeare play was that we were studying, say, in, in class. And I really envied those guys who had the confidence to get up there on stage and perform. And I desperately, desperately wanted to do that. Now, there was nothing in the world that could have possibly dragged me to that audition. It just, it would have been impossible. But I really wanted to. And when I would go to the play and watch these these guys, and, you know, there was a girls' school across the road and they would play uh, as well in the in the shows uh, and think, I wish I was part of that. And I can remember going to one, I think it was Hamlet, and when I was leaving the school later that evening and seeing this group, I don't know, six or seven guys from my class and uh, girls from across the road, uh, just, you know, in a, in, a, in a huddle talking with each other after the play and feeling, I wish I could be part of that. I wish I could be in a group like that and feel part of something. And I, you know, I always have this question that whatever we achieve in life, no matter what we do, if we had done a different career, if we had taken a different road, would we have achieved the exact same level? So if I had wanted to be a doctor or an actor or a singer or a politician, would whatever level I am in the publishing industry as a writer, would I have achieved the exact same level? And I kind of think, Yes, because whatever gets you to wherever you are is part of your own drive, your own ambition, and how you pick yourself up after adversity. So I kind of think I would have. When I look back, I think, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have been acting 
as a teenager and then maybe acted in Trinity? Because I think the life of an actor is a really fascinating one. I want us to pick up on something really important that you said earlier about envying the confidence that these guys had. But I want to ask first, because I think they're connected. You mentioned Trinity, which is where you went to university. Can you say what school and university were like for you? Lived kind of, a, I guess, a regular, you know, middle class life here. I was, you know, altar boy in the parish and a good student in school, but very shy, to be honest. And that was something that kind of stayed with me a lot through my teenage years. But from a very young age, I wanted to write. And all through my teenage years, I was writing and writing stories and really, really committed to it. I'd say I wrote about 200 stories between the age of about 14 and, you know, 21, 22. It was pretty much what I did with all my free time. And then I, I went to Trinity and I did an English degree. And again, I was writing while I was there. And I got my first short story published while I was uh, I think in third year, uh, in a, a newspaper here. But I think my years in Trinity, in a way, were, I don't know if they were wasted, but they weren't brilliant because I was, uh, while I loved reading and I loved the course I was doing, I was a very, very introverted guy, very shy. I do the way in university that those first few weeks really are crucial. If you don't make the friends then, you're probably not going to. And I didn't, re- I'm not trying to sound sort of uh, poor me, but um, those four years in Trinity, I, was, I did feel quite isolated. So this loops us back to the confidence question. And I mean, I do have to ask, we're talking about Dublin in the 1980s. You've said elsewhere that you didn't come out as gay until much later, which must have impacted on your ability to feel comfortable in your own skin. What was that environment like growing up? I guess one of the things I really remember was being about 15. And uh, that would have been sort of mid to late 80s. And coming home from school in my dad's car, And there was a news report on the radio about AIDS, which of course was so prevalent in the 1980s. And there was somebody on the radio talking about the fact, and of course this was, you know, this would never be said today, but then, that, you know, a case could be made for rounding up all the gays, basically, and, you know, putting them on an island out sort of somewhere in the Lord of the Flies way and, you know, let them all you know, sex each other to death, basically. And um, and I remember listening to this as a 15-year-old who was com- coming to terms with being gay in my head and thinking, is this the future? Not the throwing onto the island, but am I going to be dead by the time I'm 25 if I, you know, have sex with somebody? And by that point, sorry to interject, but by that point, did you, you had come to terms with it in your head. At what point did you realize? I, I wouldn't say I'd come to terms with it. I knew that I was. I mean, I knew the same way that anybody knows when they're eight, like 10 or 11, 12. Um, once I started understanding what, what gay meant, I knew that I was the same way a straight person just knows that they are. Um, but I, ha- I certainly hadn't come to terms with it. And I certainly didn't think at that point and in that time, I thought, well, I'll just never tell anybody this. You know, this is um, something I'll just have to live with. That news story presumably was the prevailing sort of sentiment. Oh, yeah. That was the atmosphere that you were Well, also in. homosexuality was illegal. In Ireland. It wasn't decriminalized until 1993, which is extraordinary. You know, I was in third year in college. I published my first short story before homosexuality was even decriminalized. Yeah, as a teenager then, I felt, obviously, you know, I felt the same urge as any other teenager felt, you know, uh, but there was nowhere really to express it in those days. So to have followed this path, you'd have needed to have a level of confidence at an age when in your real life that wasn't available to you. How about now? Do you feel confident now in your writing life? As, as somebody who has been publishing for so long, when I'm on a stage at a festival, I feel very, very comfortable up there. And it, I, I look back and I know as a kid, I would have thought uh, it, the idea would have made me like jump out the window. But I feel very comfortable up there. I feel I'm good on a stage. You know, I feel I can talk to an audience. I can be 
kind of like self-deprecating and, you know, get the audience on side and talk about books, talk about my books. It all comes down to to, to that level of confidence and, and how that changed for me. So we're going to get into this question. We're going to go right back to this moment um, when uh, you were looking at all of these kids in the drama society and knowing that if you had, could audition for Hamlet, that you could sort of be part of that and that that was going to be sort of your moment of belonging. But um, just really briefly, we've we've sort of touched it, but I'm curious when you've thought about that life, when you've thought about you as an actor, if you've thought about it very much at all, how far did you get in the imagining? Like in your imagination, did you go to Hollywood? Did you end up in, on stage at the National? No, I, I think when I think about it, it's about the traveling as well. Maybe like it's very related to what I do anyway. You know, the idea of just being in different cities and new jobs and working with people. You know, the one of the things about being a writer is you're, you're, you spend so much time on your own. And one of the most interesting experiences I ever had as a writer was when we made the movie of Boy in the Striped Pajamas and subsequently uh, the promotion of that. And I was brought on that promotional tour around the States and Europe. And I always equated it to being like going from being a solo singer to being in a band, you know, where you were on a stage with people who had all worked on the same project and you were just one of them. And I really loved that experience. It was so much fun to just to be part of a company rather than it just to be about about me. Uh, I, I think it would be fun to go from movie set to movie set and be new people all the time. Well, let's go down the path and see if you end up bopping from movie set to movie set. You're 16 years old. Auditions come up for Hamlet. And you're saying that had you had more confidence, you would have gone for it. And at this point, you're aware of your sexuality, but you haven't shared that with anybody. Oh, God, no. But you do have more confidence and you go and you audition. How do you do in your audition? I think I would have showed promise. I think I would have been committed to it the same way that I was committed to the writing I was doing at the time. Once I was up there, I would have been nervous, but maybe this sounds very trivial. I would have known my lines. I would have known how to deliver them. And I would have listened to input because I've always been good at taking criticism or taking notes. I welcome that. I think I, 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 think I would have given it like a decent audition and I would have got not the lead part. I think I would have been somebody that has to play a few different parts because... I remember the guy who played Hamlet was just like super confident, super handsome, super cool. I think I would just would have been a solid, you know, solid guy on stage who knew his lines and knew how to deliver them. But then I think, you know, over time, I would have given my equivalent of the Boy in the Striped Pajamas performance that would have just maybe changed things. Let's figure out when that happens. Does that happen the next year in school? No, I think I would have replaced the English degree with maybe going to like the Gaiety School of Acting or something like that. I do remember at the time being, I remember getting the uh, brochures from the National Film School, actually, in England, and having this vague thought about maybe trying to work in film in some way. You know, obviously, you know, when you're a teenager, no matter what you're doing, in my case, I was a creative teenager, so I was looking at all these different creative things, but I was trying to find the right one for me in a way. So I think I would have gone on to like an acting school, learned my craft. One of the things I did very much with all of that writing in my teens and my early 20s was I feel I was really er learning my craft. I was writing all the time. Most of those stories were not worthy of publication. They couldn't have been, but everyone made me a, a better writer. So I think I would have done the same thing. I think I would have performed in plays. I would have got a little bit better, understood it better, understood stagecraft better, understood how to uh, deliver lines to an audience, how to be a character. I would have learned it uh, and understood it. And I think that would have taken like a good few years, you know, maybe up to about 25. Okay. So let's just, I'm going to get us real specific though. So where do you go to drama school? 
I think I would have gone to the Gaiety one here in Dublin. And then maybe after that, in the same way that I went to UEA from Trinity in Dublin, maybe have tried to go to something like Rada or something and uh, one of those places and try to, you know, get into, you know, to audition for that and try to get in. You, in that moment, you've finished at the Gaiety School, you've been really diligent, you've been practicing, um, and you're looking for your next steps. You've got that little bit more confidence, not mega confidence, but just enough, but you've grown it a bit, presumably. Well, I think what you're looking for then is the place that will start to get you jobs. You know, in my, in, as I'm saying this, in the back of my mind, I'm relating it all to publishing, where it's, you know, the what would you do next that will find you an agent or find you an, a publisher. So, and I think moving on to something like Rada would be, that's the place that you could find jobs that maybe you would start getting into plays um, in the West End or into a repertory company or something, and then maybe, you know, get some work in TV or something like that. Um so I, I don't think I would ever have been the kind of person that would have thought, right, what do I want? I want to instantly be a leading man type thing. You know, uh, in the same way with writing, I think you have to, you, you build it up over time and whatever skill you have, whatever talent you have, uh, eventually comes out of you and people recognize that, whether it's, whether it's readers increasingly coming to your books or casting directors uh, looking at you and saying, actually, no, he'd be good for, for this or for this. So in your unlived life, you're going to RADA. In your real life, you went to UEA. Say something about that experience. So when I left Trinity, when I, I did a master's at UEA in Norwich, uh, the creative writing MA that Malcolm Bradbury had set up in the 70s. And the minute I got off the plane uh, in England, I just told myself, right, you're going to have to change. You know, this is a new country for you. This is totally new people. Nobody knows anything about you. So you can completely reinvent yourself. And literally the first day that I arrived, you know, we all met up the, the, the class, those 12 of us on the, the writing course. And I think I was the first person at the end of the introductory session to say, shall we all go to the pub? You know, and uh, from that moment, I just threw myself in like a lunatic into that year and had an incredible year. One of the weirdest, most exciting, strangest years of my life. First time I fell in love was on that course. And uh, first time I had my heart broken was on that course. And it was the first time I felt I can't not be this person because I... Uh, I want to be with this guy, you know, and um, I didn't, I knew I could not live a life that was different to that. So I started basically having sex at UEA with um, with guys and went to gay clubs and things and felt absolutely terrified. Um, you know, I was this kind of very, very naive young Irish guy and walking into places where people felt super confident and were super fit and super hot. And I, I think if I had been a, an actor, I would have been having a lot more sex. Does that happen earlier? Because obviously, in, at, when you were at Trinity, that wasn't you weren't quite there yet. UEA was really your moment. But so at Gaiety, does it does it happen earlier? I think it probably would because I think the environment that you would be in would have been uh, much more open and freeing, and young people being you know more fluid and experimental. I would have been a different person if I had the confidence to be in the Gaiety School of Acting as opposed to sitting in the library in Trinity. I would have, by my very nature, have been a different person, and I would have been the person I was when I went to UEA, which is, you know, jumping on everything that I could jump on, basically. Okay, so you're getting your jumping in a few years early, I think basically, so, yeah. is what's happening here. Do you meet anybody special, either at Gaiety or at RADA? Do you, do you see anybody, or is it is it is it all jumping? I think it would be all jumping. I think the I think you when when you're that age, you know, you don't want to settle down too quickly. I think you know, sowing the oats, as they say, is a better is a better thing to do. You finished UEA, you went back to Dublin. I came back to Dublin, but I felt bereft. It was like I came back to my, my old life in a way. And I'd had this one year of, 
excitement and uh, oh god I missed it so much when I left but that's when I got the job in Waterstones uh, in 96 and I spent seven years there and I published my first two novels in fact while I was working there and they were great years as well you know lots of ups and downs through it the one thing I found there that I had enjoyed in UEA as well was I think we had about 40 people working in Waterstones at the time and of course you know there was a lot of staff turnover so there was always people to there was always friends, there was always people to go for a drink with. There was a lot of young people like myself who were maybe aspiring writers or actors or musicians. There was a lot of aspiration and it felt like a very creative environment to be in. And I always felt I got my books education much more in Waterstones than I did in college. I guess because in college you do spend a lot of time reading classics, but you don't spend so much time reading contemporary people. And, you know, I kind of discovered people like you know, Richard Ford or Ann Tyler, people like that, when I was in the bookshop. And you'd see the books coming in and so many other people were even like were much better read than I. And people talking and being passionate about this writer and this writer. And before you knew it, you were reading maybe 10 books by the one writer. I remember reading Margaret all of Margaret Atwood in about six months, all of Philip Roth in about six months. I don't know how I found the time because I was writing in the morning before work. I was going to work. I was going to the pub half the time. And yet I was constantly reading as well. It was a really fantastic um, time in my life. Okay, so going back to your unlived life, how are you for money? Are you having to work on the side? I'd say I would have been working in the same way, uh, like a bookshop or maybe in a theater or... Let's choose. um, I think a theater. A theater has always been... I love being backstage in theaters. So, yeah, I would have had to... uh, I'm sure I would have had to have some sort of a job. My parents are very supportive, but I don't think they would have said, right, you know, go for it, you know, and how how much should we transfer into your bank account every, every week? You're down in London. Where are you living? Oh, I don't know. Um, probably some. Probably like in a. In, you know what? In the house. Like, did you ever watch that show, This Life? Maybe, no. The, it was on the in the on the BBC in the nineties, and it was like these six lawyers living in a house together and all having you know great dramas and troubles. Um, I probably would have been like in a shared house somewhere with other actors and actresses. Okay, so you have a job in a theater, finished Rada, or you're finishing up. And obviously you're at Rada because this is, as you say, where you get the jobs. This is how you get the work. So how are the auditions going? Not well. I think that I'm starting to see people of my generation and people of like from my house or my class getting jobs and I'm not getting them because I'm not like handsome enough. You know, and I, and I don't have what people are looking for whereas you know i don't have the floppy hair and the the accents you know the hugh grant thing and i'm working hard but i'm not getting the jobs and what are you going for are you going for just everything are you going for commercials? Oh, whatever i can get literally oh, no, not commercials <laughs> my god listen to me i'm so arrogant I'm, <laughs> no, not even, no. I'm not even in this career and i'm not i'm refusing to do commercials but this is what's so, so satisfying about this is that you 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 know you know what you would do yeah i wouldn't i tell you you know because again if, if you don't mind me constantly equating things back to the writing I never wanted to take a job sort of doing like commercial copy for things. You know, people said, oh, you know, well, you can write. Why don't you like write for like a, a magazine or, or brochures or, you know, like places that need somebody who can put words together. Didn't want to do that. I didn't want to. I believed in the, the art, you know, at the risk of uh, sounding pretentious. I, I, and I didn't want to do anything to upset that. So no, no commercial. I, I think theater would be the one that would have interested me the most, being on stages. So you're not getting jobs. Yeah, we're in prime sort of Richard Curtis territory, so it's it's hard because we're not matching the look. How long do you keep at it in this vein? You're living this house, you've finished your degree, you're going to... Oh, I keep at it. because keep at I it. Because I... I I know it's going to come good one day. Okay. I can feel it, you know, and, and I know that there's no other life that I can do. And also I'm too young to jack it in. So no, I, I stick with it. Um, maybe I'm working as a waiter as well now. 
But if I am, it's in Soho House. Although I probably wouldn't even get that because, you know, you go into Soho House and the, the, the waiters in there, they look like models. And they just, you sit there and you're staring at them going, they're just waiting for somebody to say to them, you can put that tray down because I'd like to cast you in, you know, my new movie. And um, it's very intimidating. Do they hire you in Soho They do House? hire me. You know, I'm, I, I, they, they, they say they'll give me a break. So they hire me. Uh, so I'm working there um, and I'm going on auditions. And, you know, maybe I start to get like just those little small roles. Yeah. In the real world at this point, you've published a few of your novels already. Two, yeah. And obviously, as a boy and as a teenager, you've already said that you you loved to write and you were writing all the time. Um, now, we've taken a different path that's landed you on the stage. Did you continue to write just in your spare time? Was that still something uh, that was important to you? I don't think so. I think I, I, I'm the sort of person who would focus on one thing and one thing alone. And I, I think if I had gone down the acting road, every bit of energy that I otherwise put into writing, I would have put into acting. We're up to about 2003. You are working two jobs. I, I, what, yeah. What happens? I think I've, I've started to get like slightly better parts and slightly starting to make a bit of a name for myself. But I'm feeling very frustrated with it. I feel like I'm always going to be in the background. And everybody in the house is starting to do a little bit better. And I think maybe one night we're all having dinner and I just explode. And, you know, maybe I poison the, the, the stew and uh, try to kill everybody. And, and I, I think I, I, I feel I'm, I've just turned 30. I'm, this isn't really going anywhere. And it's unfair because I know how hard I work and I'm not getting the parts. So I need to get out and I burn all my bridges and quit everything and disappear. <gasps> Where do you disappear to? Home. You're in your early 30s when you'd spoil the soup and run away. Was something similar happening for you in your real life at this stage? My first two books had come out. They hadn't really set the world on fire. This was before um, that kind of new wave of Irish writers where everybody is a genius instantly and everybody gets attention. You know, it, there was none of that then. There wasn't really so many festivals then. So when a book would come out, you might you'd get a review in the paper, but there wasn't a, an awful lot to do afterwards. Now a book comes out and you do spend a year at least, you know, traveling with that book and talking about that book. So my editor, in fact, left the publishing house and I got dropped by my publisher because the books, you know, had sold about eight copies between them. So I was at this weird point. I was like 31, 32, all those years dreaming about becoming a writer, becoming a writer. And it felt like it was, it had been taken away from me before it had even begun. So I went through a bit of a, I had a bit of a, a sort of a semi-breakdown, I suppose, and took a year out, went down to Wexford and uh, just rented a little house on a beach and, um, you know, w walked up the beach every day, went swimming every day, and then wrote uh, what became my third book, Crippen. And that got me back into publishing. I got a publisher for that. And then after a year, came back to Dublin. I wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And really everything changed in my life from that moment. That was the big moment that the minute I submitted that book to my publisher and once it went out to the foreign publishers and so on and suddenly over the course of a couple of weeks I went from being kind of a nobody to being a somebody in publishing. Okay but you're not a somebody in your unlived life. You've disappeared, you've gone back home. Where do you go? You know I think I would disappear to the same place I disappeared to then which was Wexford because Wexford for me that's where we used to go as kids on our summer holidays. And it's a place that uh, feels very welcoming to me and safe. So I think I would have quit London, quit um, any commitments I had to anything, and just gone down and taken a year off. I think I was probably, 
I probably have been drinking a lot and probably taking a lot of drugs and um, feeling it's time to kind of clear out the, the system. And can I ask really quickly, um, you've burned your, you're saying you've burned your bridges and you've quit your commitments. Are there, are there any that stand out? Like, are there any particular commitments that were quite a big deal to break off? Did, were you uh, in a production? Did yeah, you have a you partner? Know, I was supposed to, uh, no, I was probably in the middle of a, of a run, but a really small role that, you know, any understudy could take. And I just emailed the, the director and say, I'm, I'm, I'm quit, you know, try to put it all behind me. And so what do you, where do you go in Wexford? Do you rent something? Same uh, place, same on a beach and, you know, walk up and down that beach every day, swim every day and try to figure out, you know, uh, where my life has gone wrong when it was, when it seemed to be filled with such promise. And do you figure it out? Yeah, I think I, I get back to the, maybe the love of, of doing it and knowing that it is the only thing that's going to make me happy in life. And that if I don't pursue it, even with the difficulties and the, the lack of success, then there is no other life for me. So, you know, after about a year, maybe I, I, I head back to London with my tail between my legs and, you know, get a copy of Stage magazine and see, can I audition for something? We're hitting about 2005. And that is when I go for an audition for a TV show, for a seri- mini-series. And mysteriously, I get the part. I get this part out of nowhere and I give it everything and I knock it out of the park. And when we finish shooting it, everybody says to me, you were brilliant in it. That was amazing. And I know that I was. I'm so happy. <laughs> so am I. I'm so pleased for your success. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> well, I owe it all to the director, of course, and the writer. Those beautiful words. and uh, My co-stars, what a thrill. Yeah, suddenly I'm on everyone's lips in casting agents. Uh, they know this is coming out and they've seen rushes of it and they think, yep, no, this guy is something. And suddenly, you know, my agent has me lined up for lots of parts and I start going to auditions and no, I start going to meetings rather than auditions. You know, I meet somebody for, you know, a coffee in a hotel, a director, and he talks to me about a part and I go, yeah, no, that sounds terrific. I'd like to do that. And, um, and then the TV show comes out and everything that everybody has said to me about my performance in it happens, you know, that they weren't wrong, that it suddenly moves me in some, to a different place. At this point in your real life, you'd met your long-term partner. You've written and spoken publicly about how important he was to you and also about your relatively recent breakup, which was a real shock for you. Do you want to say anything about what happened there? We ended up spending 11 years together. Uh, We entered into a civil partnership. Unfortunately, three and a half years ago now, um, one morning he came down the stairs out of the blue and said, I don't feel the same way anymore. And off he went, which was a real shocker and just an awful, awful experience. Um, certainly the person that, you know, you you trust and you love. And you do feel, you know, after all, this, you, you kind of, your life is settled. And, you know, you have a house together, you have friends together, your families together. And I thought, you know, we were a really great couple. We never argued. You know, we had a, what I felt was a very happy, very, I mean, maybe at times, you know, somebody could look at it and say, oh, well, it's a bit boring or something. You know, like you watch the TV at night. But, but. I was happy with that. And, um, and you know, in real life, it was a pretty exciting life. We traveled a lot. My career brought us to a lot of places. Uh, so I don't really know what he wanted. He never really told me. Okay, so in your unlived life, you're back in London. You've had your big break. How's your love life? Do you think you meet anyone? Um, 
Yes, I think I do around the same time because I'm I I feel happy in life again. I feel content. I feel ambitious, and I feel that things are coming my way. So then I meet somebody that uh, is the right person at the right time. Who is he? Do you know? Will Young. <laughs> I don't I don't know him, but you know, Will Young could would, would, would certainly do. He's somebody Will Young as so, great. Yeah. So your your career has taken off. You've met someone. Do you move from your outskirts of London? Closer yeah, in? I think I think once once I get a bit of money, I I move closer in. But I start to spend a lot of time away anyway. That uh, I'm getting jobs that are bringing me to other countries, places I've never been, and I'm starting to see the world and experience it, and really really enjoying it. The holidays as well. Uh, but taking advantage of the opportunities that are now coming my way. So, you know, realizing that this is the moment. Okay. Both for work and m- mainly for work, but he comes along. Yeah, mainly for work and turning those work trips into, to, you have to build on this. You can't sit back. This moment of luck has arrived where you were in the right place at the right time to create the right thing. How long does this kind of trajectory go on? So we're, we're, we're building, we're growing, we're traveling. I think it goes on for a long enough time that after about sort of three or four years, I realized this is actually my life now. The fear has gone away. The fear that no more parts are going to come in this career, that I'm not going to get, metaphorically speaking, dropped, that I, I do good work and people seem to appreciate it and the offers keep coming. And then I start to enjoy it and think, well, I want to challenge myself more in this. I don't want to just rely on uh, maybe if I've fallen into playing the same type of character over and over because I know I can do it that maybe it's time to sort of mix that up and try um, see what else I can do with whatever level of skill I have and experiment more and challenge myself more. And in that, uh, that opens up so much of my personality, I think, that uh, I think there's a moment that comes in, in maybe a creative person's life where they realize, again, at the risk of sounding arrogant, that they're, that they're good, that they, they can do this and they can, they can reach a little bit further each time and whatever problems arise in the creation of a character or a book or whatever, that you will solve those problems. That that is the, it's not just the task, but it's the fun of it. That's the reason you want to do this. So I start to maybe, you know, branch out a little and try different things, accept roles that would not necessarily have been the obvious ones or put myself forward for roles that people wouldn't have thought me the right person for and maybe willing to say you know what I'll audition I don't care I'm fine you know like I've made enough money or something and I've got a good career I want to do this let me audition for it and if you don't like it that's cool you know but let me let me give let me give it a shot that sense of safety is something you've alluded to before and how important that is um, and is that something that you feel there's an equivalent of in your writing life do you have a memory of feeling yeah, safe and secure? Do you feel that's do. something you're still questing after? No, I, I felt it around by about sort of 2008, 2009, when the first wave, the first couple of years of, of Stripe Pajamas had all happened. But uh, I'd also published a couple more books and they'd done really, really, really well. And they were being published in like, you know, 40 languages. I was traveling constantly. Uh, I was getting quite well known. And I do remember around sort of eight or nine thinking, you know what, I am, I am actually safe. It's all those years of trying to get published and then getting dropped after the first two and then trying to get back in and hoping that it's going to last. I, I, I understand the industry well enough to know I am actually safe now. I have a publisher who I have a great relationship with. The readers are coming more and more with each book. And as long as I keep writing them and keep doing my very best with them, 
I'm safe. So I felt it around then. Okay. And that sense of safety, it's interesting. When you talk about it in terms of publishing, because you, uh, you've continued to do this across the way, you do articulate a network. You talk about the publishers. You talk about the system of writing. You talk about the writers and the festivals and all of those things. Does that same sort of reliance on network and the kind of infrastructure exist in this life? Or you, do you feel kind of connected to the I, I system in the way? I think it probably exists even more. Okay. Because uh, in, in this fantasy life, your job is absolutely dependent on working with other people. Whereas in my real life, in theory, I could simply just write the books and don't do, don't do any publicity, don't do any festivals. You know, I could just, and, and they could still publish them. So yeah. I could, I could, if I wanted to do a sort of a J.T. Salinger or something, or, you know, and just disappear from the world. But you can't do that in this fantasy life as an actor. The, you, you, you have to work with other people. So you, you started to push yourself... I think we're up to about 2012, 2013 now. You're really, really growing. And you move into new roles away from policeman into... I think just into interesting others. parts. Yeah, yeah, you know, and to settling down into interesting parts. And I think I I don't become necessarily the Oscar winner, but I become the very solid actor who shows who shows up in so many things and, and works with lots of people. TV and um, film? Yeah, and stage. And stage. Um, and, you know, a reliable sort of second lead, so to speak. Um, but I don't think I'm destined for uh, the kind of like Bradley Cooper or Leonardo DiCaprio level. I think I'm more destined for that sort of just middle ground that people know him and they cast him and always does a good job and gets on with the job professionally. Okay, so um, we're get, I think we're getting close towards the end of the path here. I want to know how things are going with Will Young. We had a terrible breakup, and we're not talking at the moment. Um, no, I think I probably would have like actually stayed with... Uh, I think the relationship would have worked out somehow. Because I don't think, even in real life, I, don't, I, I still think that relationship should have worked out. It doesn't make any sense to me that it didn't. So, you know, I, I feel it's it's the greatest loss I've experienced in life and it absolutely makes no sense to me. So I think in the fantasy life, I'm going to give myself this. And we have a kid. When did you have a kid in this trajectory? Have you... Probably about 2012. A boy. A boy. Okay. Do you have a name? Ethan. Lovely name. It was the name I always wanted for myself. Oh, interesting. So. <laughs> okay. Um, now, this is obviously a point of difference with your yeah. real life. Um, if you're happy to, can you talk a little bit about... about? Well, I, I think because I'm 48 now, and I, I'm probably... Uh, I'm, I'm part of that sort of last generation that kind of really doesn't happen for, in a way. If I was 28... I would, and gay, you know, I would, regardless of whether I was going to be in a relationship or not, it would be something that I would be driven towards. You know, I've always wanted to be a dad. Uh, it's one thing in my life that I didn't get to experience that I would have liked to experience. It doesn't weigh me down or anything, but it's um, it's a thing I sort of feel I've missed out on. Like a, a young gay man now doesn't have to think, oh, well, I can't be a dad. Uh, whereas when I was that age, it just wasn't really a possibility at all. And uh, so I, I think I would have been I would have always assumed, the same way that I think, you know, uh, like straight people, you know, when you're young, you assume you'll probably have a kid at some point. And I, I think I would have been like that. I just would assume at some point I'll have a kid. And I would have done that. Um, and I'm too old for that now. But um, but that's okay. You know, it's that's just part of life. And can I ask, and if you don't want me to, then I won't, but was it a conscious decision between you and your partner not to? We were together for, say, six years before even the... Um, six, seven years before even the civil partnerships were 
were legal. So it, it just it wasn't really part of the conversation. Obviously, we, we would have had conversations saying, you know, well, would you have liked to be in a dad, that type of thing. But but it wouldn't lead towards the possibility, really, in too many ways. Do you and your partner and your child stay living in London? And where are you? Or do you come back? I think, yeah, we probably live in, we probably have our base in London. Yeah, not in America. Is that something you would have thought about? I think that, that, that those freedoms are there when you reach a certain level. But uh, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a homebody and London isn't home, but I think I probably have to be in London more than Dublin, really. So uh, I, I think, um, yeah, London would be the base. Is he from London? Yeah. You've said in interviews, in a recent interview, that your ex-partner didn't understand the book's side so much, that that was sort of less his thing. Um, is your fantasy partner more into it? I think any future partner in fantasy or in real life is going to have to be. You know, it, it was a sticking point. Um, you know, he didn't enjoy books, events, wouldn't come to festivals or anything really. Well, he'd come to the cities, but he wouldn't come to the events. And I think that became a little bit of an issue that I felt maybe he just wasn't interested in. I mean, he wasn't. It's fine not to be a reader. If you're living with somebody for 11 years, you know, it's nice to read a book from time to time. And and I think I, I would struggle now to form a relationship with somebody who just isn't interested in that world. As you're speaking, I should clarify that question, which is obviously in your other life, you aren't into books, you're you're an actor. And so is your partner into your acting career? Uh, yeah, I think he'd be somebody who enjoys creativity, who is, a, even though it's the acting thing, likes reading, for example, mm. likes going to movies, you know, likes going to the theatre, is engaged in it certainly in some way. Maybe okay. even working in it, not an actor. I couldn't um, do that, but uh, maybe somebody who is... You know, maybe, I don't know, like a cinematographer or a lighting director or something, you know, like mm. that kind of thing. What Somebody, is he? Let's choose. An editor. Yeah, an editor. As in a film editor. Yeah, film editor. Okay. Um, I think that would be uh, that would be good. So somebody, yeah, like who understood the world and was interested in it and that uh, you had a lot in common. Well, and it also sounds, I mean, an editor is, is somebody who's there to support the sort of raw material. So again, yeah. it feels like somebody who really provides a certain level of support, his expertise would really play into. And knows what should be, you know, on yeah. the stage or on the play or on the page and what shouldn't, you know, where, yeah. to, where to cut. All right. Was there anything in this um, alternate life that surprised you? Um, no, I don't think so. I think... Uh, it's funny, I didn't give it an awful lot of thought before starting this conversation today, uh, so I hadn't really planned on where it was going to go. And I suppose I, I have related it very much to my real life, you know, and it, that goes back to what I was saying at the very start about do we, whatever we choose, do we have the same experiences? And um, and I guess it's, I guess I think that we do. Something I've been thinking about along the way while you've been talking is is about a sort of tendency in your uh, fiction and also in your new life in theater and acting, um, there's a there's a sort of an equalizing impulse, a sort of desire to um, this thing you said about you know when you're on the stage you know the lead actor and all of the backup actors they're all the same there's there's something about you all that's all the same and I was thinking about this when reading Boy in the Striped Pajamas about this desire to be on the other side of the fence and to understand what's on the other side of the fence. And it made me think about, again, what your life must have been like or your psyche must have been like growing up in this probably quite desperate desire for people to understand you and to be able to, not just for you to be inside other people's minds as a writer and a creator, but for people to inhabit your mind and to know what it is that you're experiencing, especially in those moments. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we all think we're incredibly interesting and, you know, unique, but not everybody gets the chance to share that 
with the world, but but we are. Uh, you know, everybody out there has their own stories and their own lives and their own. Uh, I often think about it. You know, when I when I'm doing an interview, say, or or listening to somebody being interviewed, and they you know, have an interesting story to tell. But we all probably do, and we don't all get the chance to to tell those stories. And uh, again, going back to the, the book I've written, we all share those same emotions. And sometimes you can talk about something, say, on the radio, and you'll get messages later that they that other people have gone through that experience and maybe have felt uh, some support through the words that you've said or understood it. I know when when that when my marriage broke up, uh, I did a, a long interview on, on, on RTE and I got a lot of positivity after it from people who said, you know, I, I'd just been quite honest about how it felt and and it wasn't, you know, practiced. It was just, it started to just pour out of me and it was, I was obviously kind of broken and very sad and upset. Um, but maybe people listening to that can find something in it, you know. In our conversation, John and I both picked up on a word that seemed really important to him, safety. John's unlived life had its origins in a really tough and dangerous place, a place where he felt afraid to be himself. Literally, that to be himself would result in him being rounded up and shipped off to an island. I think it's possible that this resulted in the sort of by-the-book steadiness with which John described both his lived and his unlived life. The way he approached his writing and in this exercise his acting career is a masterclass in how to get where you want, one step at a time, even in the face of setbacks. But as we discussed, even this approach can't always protect you. When we spoke, John was still very much feeling the effects of a traumatic breakup one which he hadn't expected and which almost certainly left him feeling the opposite of safe. What I loved about our conversation was the way in which, once he'd gotten himself to a place of safety as an established actor, he allowed himself some space to dream, to fall in love again, to travel the world. He even allowed himself a child, and I think that while he said in reality this is no longer possible, Really what he was doing was giving himself permission for life to begin again. 